Well, happy Sabbath. Well, it's been a long week for us. Um, we're running on low energy, but with God's help, we're going to get through this. And forgive me if the slides aren't. I usually make the slides for the people who watch online and are um, going to watch it later on YouTube. Um, but just forgive me if the slides aren't right. But I think they're right. But um, what I wanted to do with this sermon. Okay, all right. What I want to do with the sermon, because I got to thinking about everything that I got to cover in this one sermon, I'm going to split it into two parts. This one, we're going to finish um, the Church of Laodicea, but I'm going to leave the practical part of what we should do next for the last sermon in the series so that when we go back and watch it online, I have a full sermon I can go over. What do we do? Because I want to focus on the why this church is so pitiful in God's eyes. And I want to share with you um, how pastors, the concerns that pastors, not just the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but pastors as a whole, what their concerns are. I want to share the state of the church as attendance. Are we growing? Are we declining? And I'm not talking about the world. I'm just talking about the Christian church as a whole. And I want to talk about... Um, what the beliefs are in the church itself. And, and I can get you this information through surveys that's been done about the church. So you're going to be, it's very interesting the things that Christians believe in this country and around the world, but specifically in the United States. So um, what I want to say is that on, if you are watching this online, we have, six or seven sermons I've already done in this series, and you can find those on our YouTube channel. Um, and let's go ahead and begin. Are you ready? This is a sad church. I think we've done many sermons over the church of Laodicea. Um, and I would like to say for the millennials in here and who are listening and to the generation that's coming up after my generation, I'm a millennial, this is really geared towards us. Because we are the beginning of what's, what makes this church so really pitiful and bad. It's my generation. I'm an exennial. For those of you who don't know what that is, there's a few of us. I'm like one of the oldest millennials in this generation. And we are in that age where we, we still remember when we were children the quote-unquote old world. But we were children, and, and we've grown up with technology and the increase of knowledge as we've gone on. So that now we're in this stage of AI and all this stuff that's going on. We're still young in the prime of our life, and really are becoming in control of the world through you know leadership positions and all of that. I'm an exennial, so I, I remember when there was a phone and there was a dial, and there was a cord that went to the wall. I remember that. I remember when we played records on vinyl disc. <laughs> You know, I remember that, you know, but for these kids, they don't they don't know anything about, you know, about that time. But we do remember that time. And so I have a unique experience being I'm 40 years old, almost 41. So if you're 50 years young, old, like the last part of that generation X or younger, please pay attention because this is this is us. They're really talking about. All right. So. These, the significance of the letters. I've done this sermon about around 2010, and I tried to do the whole seven churches in one sermon. And I realized afterwards that 
there's no way you even remotely touched on these churches. That's why we're doing the series. But uh, each of one of these churches that we're talking about at the beginning of Revelation was an actual church that existed at the time that the letters were written by John on Patmos. And these, these letters were written to an individual church. However, what a lot of people who, who read Revelation don't realize, it was also a prophecy. And it was about time periods from that time until the end of time when the Lord comes back. And so it was a dual thing going on where um, if we read these churches, you see history being played out in each one of these letters. And so I'm going to quickly go through this because I've done this six times. And so I'm going to quickly go through so we can get to the part. For the part of the world that we're talking about, it's in around the Mediterranean Sea. And in the present day of uh, of uh, Turkey, so that's that's the part of the world, and that's the country where these churches were all located on the coastline of Turkey. Um, you can see in this image on the coastline, Laodicea, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, all the churches, and then there's an island out um, outside on the coast where John, um, the Revelator, that's where he was imprisoned on that island, and he wrote these letters to the churches at that time. And so, like I said, I've done a sermon over John the Revelator at the beginning, so if you want to know more about his part in all this, you can listen to that sermon as well. Okay. In the last sermon, I want to do a summary of the promises that God makes to each church and how we can take those promises and apply them to us today. Because what you'll find is that not only were these promises made to these churches um, as a prophecy, but they all, almost all of them apply to us today. And the Church of Ephesus was from the time of uh, John's time. And I'm going to quickly just go over, over these. This was when um, all the disciples were still alive, up until the time of 100 AD. This church was on fire for the Lord. And they took their mission to spread the gospel out to the world very, very seriously. And um, as I talked about in that church, they had problems, but they were, they were the church that the Lord said returned to that first love. And that's going to be very important in this last sermon when we talk about, about us returning to our first love. But that's, that's what the church of Ephesus was. And the promise he gave that church was he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God, Revelation 2, 7. In this promise to the faithful, Jesus takes the minds of his people forward to the eat and restore it at last. All right, and then the next period was the church of Smyrna, which was from 180 to around 313 A.D., and this was the time of the persecution, the great persecution by Emperor Diocletian. And basically, this was the first Roman, the national, like the major edict to actually start persecuting um, the early Christians. Uh, there were local persecutions that were happening during that period, but this was the first one that was like the the um, like the whole country where Rome actually persecuted the, these people. And for ten years, this is when they, you see the, them throwing the Christians into the arenas, and the gladiators and the lions and would come out and execute, execute them for the entertainment of the crowd. That's that's this time period here in Church of Smyrna. And so he made a promise to this church. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. 
He that overcometh shall not be hurt of you sent the second death, Revelations 2.11. The promise of this church was that if faithful, they would not be hurt by the second death. This means that they would be raised to have eternal life. How kind Jesus was to point out to these dear people going through this terrible time that he had also been dead and rose again. So they, if faithful, would also. All right. Satan, like, Satan tried to stamp out the church through persecution. But what he found was the more he persecuted, the, the more the church grew. And you see that throughout the Bible. Anytime Satan tries to persecute God's people, that is actually the best time for spiritual, for the church spiritually. That is when the church actually grows. So then we go to the church of Pergamos. And, then, and this is when he's like, okay, if I can't destroy the church through persecution, then let me do the opposite. And this is the time of Constantine, 313 AD to 530 AD, and the rise of the papal power. This was when um, Constantine comes into power and he makes Christianity the religion of the land. And he basically takes paganism and Christianity and he merges it together to form what becomes the Christian um, faith. And it, like, like I said, in that sermon, you'll see uh, it is very um, um, diabolical what Satan is doing here is that he makes it comfortable and actually profitable to be a Christian. But in doing so, the people who remain faithful to God and would not compromise, they become outcasts. They become the ones who have to go into hiding because now you, you either conform or you get persecuted and there's no, you know, and that whole thing. So they have to go into hiding. And so he made a promise to this church as well. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I eat, or I give to you of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth. Revelations 2.17 Jesus promised those who remain faithful that they would eat of the hidden manna and have a white stone with a new name. The hidden manna meant several things. The first one was the assurance that God would feed and care for them even if they had to flee into the wilderness like ancient Israel who was fed as they wandered in the wilderness. It also meant that even though their leaders and ministers were providing false and they were not giving spiritual food in the fallen church, Jesus himself would give them spiritual food and be their leader. That is the same for us today. That's exactly what's happening today, in case you don't know. What's going to happen is when all of when Catholicism and Protestantism unites together, it's going to become that is what that is the religion of the land. But if you don't want to compromise, you're going to have to lead the church. That is when the persecutions begin. Conformity is the enemy of true worship. Okay, so then we go into the Church of Thyatira. This was from 538 A.D. to 1517 A.D. This was the church in the wilderness during the Middle Ages. And so what happens is when the papal power comes into power, one of the things they do is they try to take, they take, they don't try, they take the Bible away from the people. And it is now illegal to own your own Bible unless you are clergy or of, of that nature. And you have to not go to the priest to, to have them pray for you. Um, and this was a form of control, but this was a this, this puts the world into a spiritual darkness. This is another way of thinking of the dark ages. Is this was a time when it was 
Like you, the, the Bible just wasn't there. So also, but, but the church of God, will, the church will never, God will never let his church get stamped out. And so now you have people who go into the mountains and they go into the wilderness and they worship and keep the faith alive. Like the, the, the wildernesses and people of that nature. They keep the faith alive and slowly near the end of the, end of the dark ages, they start to bring the truth back to the people. And he had a promise to this church as well. He that overcometh and keeps my works uh, unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter. They shall be broken to shivers, even as I receive my father, and I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Revelations 2, 26-29. The church in those days was busy seeking power to rule the nations of earth. The faithful were solely harassed and hounded by church and state powers. But Jesus was telling the faithful ones that if they were true, the day would come they would have the victory over and real power through him. Okay, so then we go to the church of Sardis. This is from 1517 A.D. to 1820 A.D. This is the time of the beginning of the Reformation. God used people to slowly bring back all of the Ten Commandments all of the truths that were lost during um, the Dark Ages. And it, it finalized with the last truth, the Sabbath, with the next church that we're going to talk about. But this is the time of um, Wycliffe and all of the reformers coming into, coming into the picture um, to bring these truths back. And he had a promise for these people. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name of the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, Revelations 3, 5, and 6. Jesus says that there were a few faithful ones among them, and if they were overcomers, they would remain in his book of life. And I'm not going to do the rest of that, but basically, in every church... There were problems. There were always going to be problems in any church. Um, but there were two churches that actually God had nothing bad to say about. Okay? And so this is why Laodicea is kind of pitiful. is because he actually had nothing good to say about our church. Ooh. <laughs> right? So this is the church of Sardis during the time of the Reformation. And in the last sermon I did, it was the church of Philadelphia. And this was the time period from 1852. Um, actually, that's wrong. That slide's wrong. But this was the time of the Great Disappointment. This was when uh, the spread, the knowledge, you know, like in the, the knowledge spread far and wide. And people started to study the scriptures and realized that something important was about to happen. And they thought that it was the second coming of Christ. And you had people from all churches coming together to study and worship and they were studying diligently the scriptures and trying to get prepared for his second coming but on the day um, that he was supposed to come he did not come and they were greatly disappointed and when they went back to search through the scriptures they realized it wasn't his second coming that was happening it was that he was going into the most holy place to do judgment and this was the beginning of the judgment period, which is what we're in right now. And from all these churches came the Seventh-day Adventist church because the Seventh-day Adventist church is about the advent 
of the coming of Jesus Christ. And most of these people were ostracized from their churches, ridiculed um, and socially persecuted. I'll say it that way. And they had to come. They came together to form this church, which is why this church of Philadelphia is so dear to us is because this is the origins of our church. And so he had a promise to this church. He said that he that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. Revelations 3, 12 and 13, which brings us now to the church of Laodicea. I had to go through all that <laughs> for those who may be just coming in to give them a, just a quick review of where we've been in the series. Now we get to go to Laodicea, which is which is us in our time period. And this is from this is uh, from 1852 to the end of probation. OK, so let's read the scripture first and then let's break it down. And if you want to open your Bibles up, you can open it up to Revelation 3, and we're going to read 14 through 22. If you, or you can watch read it on the screen, but some people that may be hard to read. Uh, Revelations chapter 3, 14 through 22. All right? Let me know when everybody's about ready. Good, good. Okay, all right. To the church in Laodicea, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with saw that thou mayest see as many as I love I rebuke and chasten be zealous therefore and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if any man hear my voice and open the door I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Okay. So let's take go back to the uh, Revelations 3, 14 and 15. There are two churches that Jesus said nothing bad about. And here is the saddest church of all, for Jesus had nothing good to say about them. This is our time starting about 1852, and it is important that we understand this message. Laodicea means judged, for we live in a time when an investigative judgment is taking place in heaven to see who will go home with Jesus and who will not. I say, I'm going to leave this up so that you can read the verses while I read them. This church is so bad that Jesus says he is going to spit them out because they are disgusting to him. Spitting them out of his mouth means he will not plead for them without Jesus to plead on their behalf. They are lost with no hope to ever see heaven. At the very time in history when they should be eagerly seeking God and preparing for Jesus' soon coming, they are worldly and indifferent. They just don't care. And that is the greatest insult to God possible for man to make. And then in Revelations 3, 17, 18, 
he ta- is talking about why. He's talking about because we are so rich. If you think about it, if you compare our time to the rest of human history, especially in the West and especially in this country, the poorest amongst us live as kings and queens in the past. You ever thought about that? Just the, the things we take for granted, electricity, having, having a home period, just having your own home period. Um, we don't worry about, are we going to have a meal today? We worry about what kind of meal we want to have today or day. You know, we get tired of eating certain foods. I, I'm tired of eating Mexican food. I'm going to eat Italian food today. <laughs> right? Think about just what we do take for granted where people in the past were like, are we going to have a meal tomorrow? We are rich compared to the rest of time. We are blessed in this country specifically. Now, I know around the world this is not the case everywhere. But when you think about the West and you think about um, countries like ours, we have an abundance. And just like the Church of Laodicea itself at the time that he wrote the letters, they were actually very wealthy as well. There's no there's there's a reason there's a correlation between that church and our time and period here because they describe each other. But he says um, the sad thing about these people is that they think they are perfect. And when they are not right at all, what um, what can we do? We must believe what Jesus tells us, that we are a mess, poor, blind, miserable and naked. That's as bad as it could possibly be. Jesus tells us um, what we need to buy of him. The gold is Jesus' faith and love. The white raiment is the righteousness of Jesus. The asab is having the Holy Spirit teaching God us so we know what right from wrong. So we can clearly see clearly what is going on. It also refers to the extra guidance that Jesus has given his last, his last day people in understanding the prophecies. We need this asab to be able to correctly see the truths hidden in the scriptures. To apply it, we need to carefully study the inspired word of God, praying for the Holy Spirit to teach us personally. I want you to think about something here. When do we get on our knees? Like, think about the world in general or the Christian world. When do we get on our knees and pray? Typically is when we need something, right? We do it, we, we, we give praise, but most of the time we are in prayer for needs, spiritually, financially, physically, health-wise, whatever. But if you have everything, why do you need God? Why do you need to pray when you have an abundance of everything? Have you ever thought about that? That's, that's part of the problem. We're too comfortable. That is what being lukewarm is. When you're in hot water, you're not comfortable. When you're in cold water, you're not comfortable. But you get in lukewarm warm, you'll fall asleep. <laughs> right? That's what's happening as a church. We are falling asleep because we're comfortable. And it says, as many as I love and rebuke and chasten, be zealous, therefore, and repent. Revelation 3.19. Sweetly, Jesus seeks to encourage us by telling us he is rebuking because he loves us. Then he must rep- we must repent and be sorry for our sins and pray. Asking Jesus for, right, for the right raiment, his, per- his perfect character. The goal, which means the faith and love of Jesus. The eyesight for our spiritual eyes, which means we need to have the Holy Spirit to teach us and guide us as we diligently study the Bible in the spirit of prophecy writings. Then in the strength of Jesus, we will obey what we find there. Jesus is outside the hearts of the people in this church. 
Um, he warns them that they may have to, that he may have to reject them, but he is trying so very hard to get individuals to open up their hearts and let him in. He can, so he can recreate and save them. Basically, we are falling asleep. We are the sleeping virgins, and the Holy Spirit cannot reach us because we are asleep and we're not listening. That's what's happening. There's like, we, like I said, we've done many sermons about, about the church of Laodicea in this time period. And they all, all these sermons, I've realized, they all kind of culminate and come together in this way to just really put a bright spot on what's happening to us. What I'm going to do, so for the sake of time, I'm going to get to the part now where I want to show you through the statistics what is actually going on. And I'm, I'm not going to go through all of it, but I do want some interesting things for you to think about. In the world today, there are roughly around eight, um, roughly around eight billion people on the planet. There are roughly 2.4 billion Christians in the world, making it the largest religion in the world, over 25 percent of the population. But what's interesting about it is Christianity, the 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 the, the, the number of Christians in the world is declining. Both Catholic, Protestant, doesn't matter. All of it is in decline. So what that's speaking to is our kids are leaving the church. People are coming into the church, but there's more people leaving than coming in, right? So just keep that in mind. So here's, this is a piece of a sermon I did uh, a, few, uh, years, a year or two ago. I just want to read to you um, some, some stats from a survey, done, a survey done. The religious landscape of the United States continues to change at a rapid clip. In Pew Research Center telephone surveys conducted in 2018 and 2019, 65% of American adults describe themselves as Christians when asked about their religion, down 12% uh, over the last decade. Um, yeah, from 2009, there's a steep, steep, steep decline. I want, you, I want you to think for a second. What happened in 2008, 2009? Did, did, did anybody have an idea? Social media. Social media comes into play. And it has dramatically changed, especially my generation and the younger kids. It has changed our view of the world. We are more interested in social media than we are in anything. Our faces are in the phones (laughs) 24-7. The more we are into our phones and entertainment and all the things we're doing, guess what we're not doing? We're not reading, and we're not specifically reading the Bible. That is something that's going on. Uh, and just to, I'm, I'm going to summarize. Basically, religious nuns is increasing, uh, and, and Christians are in decline. I, I encourage you to go back and watch, find that sermon on our YouTube channel and watch it, because I go deep into the, the, the numbers. But just for a summary, that's what's going on. Okay, church attendance. Okay, the data shows uh, just like rates of religious affiliation, rates of religious attendance are in decline. Over the last decade, the share of Americans who say they are they attend religious services at least once or twice a month dropped by seven percentage points. While the share who the, the share that who say they attend religious services less than if at all has risen by the same degree. In 2009, regular worship attenders, those who attend religious services at least once or twice a month, outnumbered those who attend services only occasionally or not at all by 52% to 47% 47 margin. Those, today, those figures are reversed. 
More Americans now say they attend religious services a few times a year or less, 54%, than they say they attend at least monthly, 45%. And this is this was a survey done like three or four years ago. It's getting worse, okay? Basically, just to give you a summary, there are, I think there's around 45% of Christians that go to church weekly, and then it just drops off. Like, it's just the, the number of people who come once a month or come once a year is just increasing while the people who come regularly to church is in decline, okay? And you'll understand more by this last one here, which is the generation, the, the gap in generation. Furthermore, this, this data shows a wide gap between older Americans, baby boomers, and members of the silent generation, which would be like the people who fought World War II, for those you don't know, and millennials in their levels of religious affiliation and attendance, more than eight in ten members of the silent generation, those born between 1928 and 1945, describe themselves as Christian, which is 84%, as do three quarters of baby boomers, 76%. In stark contrast, only half of millennials, 49%, describe themselves as Christians. Four in ten are religious nuns. One in ten millennials identify with non-Christian faiths. Only about one in three millennials say they attend religious services at least once or twice a month. Roughly two-thirds of millennials, 64%, attend worship services a few times a year or less often, including about four in ten who say they seldom or never go. Indeed, there are as many millennials who say they never attend religious services, uh, 22%, as there are who say they go at least once a week at the same thing, 22%. So what's happening is... As the generations have come on, until you get to my generation, you see this dip in, in, in the numbers. And it only gets worse after my generation. So what's happening here? I think what's happening here, the more knowledge we acquire, the further into spiritual darkness we go. The more luxury and comfort we obtain the farther into spiritual darkness we go. And why I believe that is because all of our brothers and sisters who are the old generations who came before all this increase in knowledge, there's, a, there's something about a childlike faith in God. And when we feel like we have gained enough knowledge that we know more than God, then we start going by our own wisdom and making decisions. That is why I believe as the older generations pass away, the church is dying, quite literally. And it's only getting, it's speeding up. I do believe that's another reason why the Lord's coming back very soon, because he's never going to allow his church to die. Okay? That's part of the problem. The, this, this next part um, I'm just going to hit a few of these. This is some of the concerns of the pastors, um, and these are all, all um, affiliations. 72% of pastors believe that watered-down gospel teachings is a problem. Do y'all agree with that? These sermons are getting very vanilla. They're very, um, what's the word? They don't, they're not meant to hit home the way those old pastors used to hit. And even the pastors themselves have a concern for that. 
there's a 66% of the pastors believe there's a cultural shift to a secular age. I 100% agree with that. What you will hear from not the world, but Christians is scary. And I'm going to share that with you here in just a second. What Christians believe. Okay? Poor discipleships, 63% believe that poor discipleship models. They are concerned that if the pastors aren't out making disciples, then the laymen aren't going to do it either. And it makes sense. First of all, we can't depend on the pastors to do all the work. But if they aren't even doing the work, we're in trouble, right? That's one of the concerns that the pastors have. 58% um, are addressing complex social issues with biblical integrity. And the one that jumps out, obviously, is the homosexual, the gay uh, conflict that's going on right now. Do we allow them in the church? Do we not allow them in the church? Do we allow them to be elders? I mean, what do you do? There's like a whole spectrum in the Christian world of beliefs about this. Even in our church, won't go on that today. Reaching a, a younger audience, 56%. Political polarization in the country, 51% of the pastors have uh, a thing against that. Negative perceptions of the church, 46%. And it goes on. Okay, if you want to see that, just catch me. I have, a, I have it here. I can tell you where to go find that. But that's the pastors across the board. But this right here, this right here is the real why. Okay? This is another survey that was done um, where they asked questions to, the, to Christians about their beliefs. Here we go. 64% of Americans agree that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Only 52% agree that the Bible alone is the written word of God. That means 48% don't believe that the Bible alone is the written word of God. I don't have to go any farther than that, which I will, but I'm not. This right here. This is the source of the problem of this church. Think about something. When they took the Bible and the word of God away from everybody, that was, this time, that was the age of spiritual darkness. What do you call a period when you have the Bible and you don't even believe that this is the word of God? They had the word taken, in, taken from them by force. We just choose to ignore it. This right here is the problem. When you have everything, why would you waste your precious time reading the Bible? When you can watch Netflix and Disney and watch movies and do all these things on, on the Internet and all that, why would you pick up a book and read it that you feel like you don't even understand and frank, frankly don't believe it's all uh, is the, uh, alone is the written word of God? You don't believe it's the word of God. Let's keep going. Only 58% agree that God is the author of the scripture. That means 42% believe that it's just a man-written book, period. 65% agree that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 44% agree that the Bible, like all sacred writings, contain helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. 51% agree that the Bible is written for each person to interpret as he or she chooses. Only 47% agree that the Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches. <laughs> it goes on. 
59% of Americans agree that worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church, which would make sense since nobody's coming. Only 45% agree that the church that churches do not preach from the Bible should not be considered a Christian church. If you have a church that's not teaching from the Bible, is it a Christian church? I don't think people understand what Christian means. I think people think that if you go to a church and you join and put your name on that membership wall, that you are now a Christian. Christian means Christ-like. It's a describer of your character. It means a person that is trying to live their life like Christ. It is much easier to say I am a Christian than that to actually be one. They say there's 2.4 billion Christians in the world. I would say there's probably less than maybe a quarter of that in the world. There's a lot of people out here claiming to be Christians that aren't Christians. There's a lot of people claiming Christianity as they're sinning in front of everybody. I won't give any examples. Only 49% of churches agree that sex outside of traditional marriage is a sin. That means 51% thinks it's all right. 49% agree that abortion is a sin, which means 51% believes that it's all right. 42% agree that the Bible condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. 38% agree that gender identity is a matter of choice. 45% agree that the modern science discredits the claims of Christianity. 52% agree that the, by the good deeds that I do, I partially contribute to earning my place in heaven. That means 48% of Christians believe they can earn their place in heaven. Only 60% agree that Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin, which means 40% disagree. 52% agree that it is very important for me to personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, and 54% of churches agree that only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. Basically what's happening is we've rejected God's word. I want you to think about he wished that we were hot or cold but because we were lukewarm he speaks to others now. Let's think about this from the, the prophecy of what, what we're studying here. Which church was probably the one that's the hottest church? Ephesus. That first love, right? They were spreading the gospel. That's how the word got around the world. What's from the beginning in church of Ephesus? Which church was probably the coldest? And when I say I'm not talking about just a remnant church, I'm talking about the church as a whole. Which church was the coldest? It was probably the one in the dark ages when they didn't even have the word to even, to even study. He can work with those churches, but he can't work with ours. Why? When you're hot, obviously you're hot for a reason. You're studying, you're praying, and you're depending upon God. So he can use you. When you're cold... You know from the Holy Spirit in your heart that something is terribly wrong, that you're missing something. And he can send the truth to you and inspire you to change. He can work with you when you're cold. But when you're lukewarm, he cannot work with you because you have rejected the Holy Spirit. You refuse to get on your knees and pray, to repent and confess your sins. You refuse to go to church. You refuse the word of God. You don't even believe the word of God. How can you work with a person like that? That's why he spews us out of his mouth. That is the condition of our church. That's why it's so sad. And my generation 
That's where it really begins. And as we get more technology and more knowledge and more comfort, it's only going to get worse. 65% of Americans agree that God is a perfect being and cannot make a mistake. And 58% agree that God is the author of scripture. Only 47% agree that the Bible is 100% accurate in all these teachings, which is a contradiction. Christians are so confused that we believe God is God, but we don't believe the Bible. If two Christians are having a disagreement about something spiritual or something of morality, if they both agree that the Bible is the word of God and it is the authority, you can come to an agreement through study. But when one Christian doesn't even believe the Bible and the other does, how can you come to one accord? Christians are not of one accord. And it is evident in the Protestant division because we are so segregated on almost every issue. That is why this church is so bad. So, what do we do? That's what I want to spend this next sermon about because I realize there's no way I'm going to be able to get to this in the sermon. What do you do? What do we do as a church? And what do we do as individuals? It has to do with what the first promise was to the hot church, because that's where we want to be. We want to get back to being hot. We don't want to be cold. We want to be hot. Return to that first love. So how do you do that? That's what I want to talk about. Um, There's something else here. And I think we need to come up with a different term. Because when we used to say Christian, that used to actually mean a person that was trying to be like Christ, a person that was different from the world. If you went out and you talked to a thousand people and I told you 500 of those people were Christians, you wouldn't even be able to tell who's who. Just from talking, you like just go observe their life, you wouldn't be able to tell who's who. We become so conformed to the world that we look like the world. The churches look like the world. The remnant church is the church that's going to get through. It looked like I think it was Ellen Dwight. It looked like the church wasn't going to get through, but it will. The 144,000, those Christians that can do miracles because God gives us the same power that he gave Jesus Christ. What do we do to be like them? How do we become the priests and priestesses that we're supposed to be? All of these things are what I want to talk about. How do we, in a practical manner, Apply that to what we need to be doing right now so that we're not asleep, that we are returning to our first love, that we're taking these promises and we're applying them and taking um, encouragement and inspiration from them because that's what, these, that's what this prophecy is about. There's probably a reason why it was the first thing in Revelation because he knew we were going to need it. It's not all doom and gloom. It looks bad. It is bad. <laughs> There's no way to sugarcoat it. It is bad. But it doesn't have to be. God is never going to let his church get stamped out. And it's going to get uncomfortable because that's what it means not to be lukewarm. And we're going to have to put our lives on the line to save any soul that we can. And it's going to be hard. But we can do it. We have all, we don't have to wonder if God's going to come back and die for our sins. He's already done it. We have all the examples of what has happened in the past. 
We've seen all these prophecies come true. So why wouldn't the last one come true? That's our promise. So, that's what we're going to talk about in this last sermon. I just think I need a whole sermon to really go over it and give it justice because we are pitiful. (laughs) My generation, specifically, I'm ashamed, (laughs) just to be honest about it. But we will get through. All right, if you'll bow your heads, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for not giving up on us. And thank you for giving us the time to get our hearts and get ourselves right. Many of us are wondering why you're delaying. And it's not out of cruelty. It's not out of malice. It's out of love and compassion because you know we need that time. But Lord, we also know that enough is enough and that you will come back. And I ask that you give all of us, and especially my generation and the younger generations coming up, the wisdom and the the foresight to put aside this world and the secular beliefs and all the things that's going on to distract us and to get us to return to your word and to read and give our hearts to you, to establish that relationship with you. Like you said, if if we are confused and we aren't doing what we're supposed to do, how are we going to witness to others? So Lord, we ask that you Give us the wisdom, the spiritual insight, and in the overabundance of the Holy Spirit that we can be the representation on earth that you need us to be. Lord, thank you so much for everything that you do, and we promise to trust you going forward. And we love you in all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.